Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitkavage, and this is a podcast where readers can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check out daybeautiful.net for more debut author interviews and debut book recommendations. Also, please be sure to follow Day Beautiful on Twitter and Instagram. We use the handle Day Beautiful. It's as simple as that. Today's guest was born in London in 1997. She has worked as a copy editor in Tatler and as a bookseller in Waterstones. Her journalism has been published in the Financial Times. Her first novel is out now. It is called Three Rooms. Her name is Johamia. Joe, thank you for joining. How is everything going over in uh, your side of the world? Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm okay. I've been working all day, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty intensely for the last few weeks. Um, but this is a nice reprieve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm super excited. We have a quite a big time difference. It's 10 a.m. my time. It's night time or almost night time over <laughs> in England. Correct. It's off. It's five in the afternoon. Oh, so, so I don't know anything about time zones. So. <laughs> It's five in the afternoon. Um, I'm so excited to talk. You are the farthest person I've interviewed. Um, usually everyone's American based. So this is exciting. Um, your book, Three Rooms, will be out by the time this podcast is out. Um, tell mm. readers about it. What What is Three Rooms about? Um, uh, Three Rooms is a British state of the nation book told through the lens of a narrator who uh, kind of finds her position in life and her ability to make a home growing ever more precarious. And the kind of main paradox of the novel is that the rooms she's in, the rooms that are referenced in the title, get increasingly kind of more privileged and um, upper class as the book goes on. Um, but by contrast, her her living circumstances become more and more untenable. So um, she goes from paying rent on a fixed term contract to like couch surfing to you know being on a train back to her parents' home. And uh, I guess all of this is foregrounded through uh, various um, bits of British politics that uh, maybe some may be more familiar to American readers and some less, some like Brexit are very obvious, but then others uh, like the um, fire in the Grenfell Tower. Um, uh, I actually don't know how, how much reach that's had in the US, but I do know that there are a lot of parallel instances most recently in Miami, I think. Um, so there may be something to empathize with there. Yeah, what I found so interesting about the novel is uh, just how my postgraduate experience was, I moved to Atlanta for an internship and was just renting a room with like people I didn't, I never met in my life. And, mm-hmm. and then I lived on a friend's couch during that same time period just because that, you know, and so I feel like this is a very global thing that happens to many postgraduate <laughs> people, um, especially in this like millennial group that I feel we're in. Um, it's, it's hard to find a place in a world. I, I'll ask a very, a question you will probably be asked a lot, unfortunately, and I, pr- how much of this is based on your postgraduate experience? <laughs> I hate this question. Yes, I know, but I just want to get it out of the way right away. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, my my line, the more and more I get asked this question is, um, 
the settings in the book are based off of um like the period of a of about two years in my life so I did I did go to Oxford but I I was doing my um master's degree there I wasn't a um a research assistant and I did work at a glossy magazine in London um but it, it wasn't great but I had a much less fraught time there than the narrator does um and overall I would say I extrapolated basically those settings and um, put a kind of amalgamation of basically the worst possible tweets I could find <laughs> into them. So I guess my thinking was um, what, what would be the worst possible relatable decisions you could make in those settings and I was also quite interested in um uh, I guess over those two years I'd kind of gone through um a process where I I was finding it difficult <laughs> in my postgrad life as you described to kind of find a stable home and to um find a livable wage and to um I guess like settle properly in an adult way in a way that had been accessible to my parents and my grandparents but that didn't seem to be accessible to me and I like to think I did okay <laughs> but, but I but through kind of the experience of my friends and through the experience of I guess people I'd never met on the internet I I felt there was a, a wider kind of um, uh, avenue to explore. Mm -hmm. and, and your background is, I mean, you studied literature and culture at Oxford. You, you wrote like critical culture theory, social media, the impact of social media. Yeah. And all this I feel is in the book in some ways, obviously. <laughs> Was, were you always planning to write fiction or <laughs> how, how did this come into your life? Yeah. No, um, no, it's so funny because I did like one creative writing course when I was an undergraduate. And then um, when I finished it, my uh, my course leader would like wink really knowingly at me whenever I passed him in the corridor. He'd be like, I'm waiting on that book from you. And I'd be like, that's a fat chance. I'm not writing fiction. <laughs> I probably owe him a drink now, but I I wanted to write critical nonfiction. So journalism or academic books or um, even just um, like a nice splice between literary and commercially accessible um, non-fiction books um, and my plan was and still is hopefully within the next two years to do my PhD and find a lectureship uh, in London um, and teach and research um, of writing novels is a really accidental although it doesn't seem that way to anyone who's known me I think I was oblivious to it um but it was an accidental kind of thing that I actually quite like and 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 how how were you oblivious to this when did it start happening when did three rooms kind of oh um I guess there are two answers to that um 
as far as writing fiction in general, um, I thought, I guess I thought I might like to try it when I took that creative writing um, module um, as an undergraduate. Um, and kind of the thing that coincided with that, which I'm gonna repeat in this interview and many others is that I read Rachel Cusk's uh, outline books. I think only two of them had been released at that point. And my huge problem with fiction writing up until that point, because I'd, I'd attempted it, but kind of given up, um, was that I found it really flat. I found English, pro English prose, sorry, um, really flat and boring. And there was too much exposition and dialogue always had to end in, you know, he, she, they said, or, and it was just, I couldn't work my way into, I guess what some people would call a voice or a style or a format. And Cusk's uh, books in that outline trilogy were the kind of most honest form of fiction that I'd, I don't just mean in an autofictional sense, cause I think that's quite a name, but I mean, in terms of um, form, and style, they were the most honest uh, thing I'd come across and it gave me um, pause, I guess, over um, my frustrations with uh, English language prose. And then as far as Three Rooms, um, that came into my head um, summer 2018, while I was still working at aforementioned society magazine but I didn't have time to write it then because I was overworked and underpaid <laughs> and um and it was something a bit different it was a much more overtly political novel about politicians um still focusing on aspects of psychogeography um but that kind of morphed um when I, I quit the magazine job and um, and then I had more time on my hands. I was looking for a new job. Um, I thought I might need a way to fill the time. And I'd recently read Hannah Sullivan's three poems, which was, um, um, actually I'd been reading a spate of poetry at the time um, from Robert Lowell or Anne Carson or Andrew Motion. And I don't know why, but something in my head said that it, it was the same reaction as with Cusk, that it there was the potential to do something interesting with prose through reading this poetry. And then that's where the kind of first spurt of impetus for the book arrived. And was that so you were, was that after those two years where like you were still shifting around in life or were you settled yeah. then? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was still shifting. And I mean, I remember there was um, the moment that I really committed to writing the book properly was I had, um, I had an interview with Faber um, and I was in the final stages of getting an assistant editorial job there. And um, 
and then I remember like getting on the train home and I can't remember whether this was after the interview or or like a few days later but for some reason I was in London in, in any case I was thinking about the last interview I'd had and how close I was to getting this job and I just remember thinking um I really hope I don't get it <laughs> like I, I really think that if I'd gotten that job and I thought that then if I'd gotten an assistant editorial position at a publisher house especially Faber um which was and is a publisher I admire so much I would have stayed for five years doing kind of exciting but generally quite homogenous office work waiting for an opportunity to advance into a better editorial role and wouldn't really had the time or inclination to pursue other other things and I was about 10k into this book and I just thought it would it would solve my some of my issues to get this job but but actually I'd I think I don't want it I think I'd like to keep writing the book and then there was a point um in the new year of I think it was 2020 yeah that I um that I just I stopped applying for jobs because I've been doing it while I was writing I was 30k the manuscript and just thought if you finish the book everything will be fine I don't know why I thought that um and I guess um that kind of um I mean I didn't have such a hugely precarious situation because I'm I'm very lucky with the parents I have um I lived with them they were frustrated but very very generous with me um and yeah, I guess some of the precarity of that time feeds into the book, but also just, again, what I was observing on Twitter, what I was observing from my friends, this idea that, you know, my parents bought their first house in their mid-20s, and I had friends in their late 20s, early 30s who were living with groups of, you know, five or six strangers mm -hmm. in the yeah. city. Yeah, it, it is so interesting. I am... So we're we're less than a decade apart. Um, I'm 32, and mm. I think for the first time in my life, I mean, I, I still rent an apartment downtown with my girlfriend. But for the first time in my life, I feel settled, and I never felt this way. Even when I was at a job, I worked for the government for a long time, and I never felt settled. Even then, it's just so interesting what our lives are like now compared to our parents mm. or grandparents. Um, I'm I'm now older than my dad was when he had me. Um, yeah. so it's just like, and I'm not a child in this economy. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to have a child right now. And all of my friends are looking at me going, are you insane? Are you, <laughs> you don't even own property. You don't like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Um, but <laughs> I find, I actually find that kind of intergenerational, um, divide, fascinating it's it's part of what I've written my second book about um and I I find the way that those two camps talk to each other about it so interesting because it's essentially like a microcosm for like a site of struggle that's maybe a pretentious way to put it but there are these like and I I try to get it across in the book there are these tropes across generations 
of, you know, millennials being entitled or Gen Z being clueless or, you know, boomers being um, out of touch. And I'm really fascinated by how those conversations come about and what each generation takes for granted about its own situation and the neglects to take into account when they talk to someone younger or older than them. And that was another um, uh, kind of point of interest while I was writing. Yeah, that's something that's always interested me. I uh, I feel like when I was younger, I was always trying to be older. And now that I'm older, I'm like trying to be <laughs> younger. And I, I feel like my generation, you know, I graduated right around like the 2008, I graduated high school around the 2008 collapse. <laughs> I graduated college around the 2011 collapse. And now, you know, so it's just, I feel like we've just gone through so much and it's, and every other, like my parents are just like, whatever, just figure it out. And it's like, it's kind of hard to figure it out. I mean, I, I, I was lucky based on many things, but yeah, I don't, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess the point is, is that every, every generation has its hump, yeah. right? But very few people within each generation are willing to acknowledge that about themselves and about, others yeah. and um i mean i just kind of I'd, I'd like i don't know how many financial collapses i've now witnessed in my lifetime mm -hmm. withdrawals from the eu a pandemic etc i just always envision telling whatever future child i may have you know like you know nothing <laughs> you know nothing <laughs> i went through so much which is of course what my parents say to me and what their parents said to them it's and it's, it's <laughs> but you know valid in some ways it's just yeah it's very um interesting how blinkered those conversations can be sometimes mm -hmm. and and you've 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 three rooms will be out you've written a second book and you currently work in the literary community are you at double day now no so okay. um I, so at the moment, I am working uh, for the Booker Prize Foundation uh, as an archivist. Uh, that's, a, that's a relatively recent job. Um, before that, uh, was doing freelance journalism um, as and when it came along, sometimes literary, sometimes, you know, if I needed extra cash, then some kind of like business copy would come along and I would um try try and make sure it wasn't disgustingly um like morally and ethically bankrupt when I took it on um but yeah yeah and so so you you've been writing throughout your adult life then or part in the writing worlds yeah and where do you go from here you mentioned the PhD that you you want to happen what specifically do you want to study and look at oh god i don't know if this is going to jinx it oh let's we don't have to <laughs> even say it's anything okay. it's all right. <laughs> but um so i'd i'd uh my my big hump if it's not apparent by the novel is um how digital technology and social media intersect with literary production and reception and how um I guess sites and maps and modes of cultural value are dictated um, by that technology and those platforms. Um, and it's it's gotten 
I, I sometimes wish that I had written my two dissertations later in time because I think in certain genres, the concept of um, what the internet could do for a novel or you know for a book was very obvious. Like for YA, it was never a question that stuff like DMs, IM, um, text messages, emails should be factored in to plot because this is just the way that we live now. But I remember um, like how difficult it was to get anyone to take my dissertations seriously in in a literary remit or like quote unquote literary remit. And now all of a sudden in the past year, you've had this spate of so-called internet novels, which is not, I mean, they're not a phenomenon by any, or a recent phenomenon by any means, but um, you know, the Lauren Euler, the Patricia Lockwood, which I loved incidentally, and I, I wanted to win that Booker Prize. Um, I think if I'd had uh, those books as kind of, as proof, <laughs> that, that would have been, that would have helped me a lot, but I do have them now, so hopefully I can, I can write a more solid PhD on the basis of them. Mm -hmm. And fiction, I mean, is that still in your future, writing fiction? Um, well, I've got, I've got a second book, I finished it in April, mm -hmm. uh, it's got it's got similar themes to the first one in terms of um, generational arguments, um, what the internet and digital technology do to the way people think or the shape of their thoughts. Um, and I uh, I've told my agent that I'm I have no intent to write fiction for the next few years that's mostly because I think it would be very whatever book I'd write within the next few years would be too similar to the other two um but I'm already kind of missing the, <laughs> the purpose that um working on a on a long-term project in isolation brings even though you kind of feel like you should, you're going crazy and you should be checked into a mental hospital um I miss the kind of okay now, now 2000 words that'll be my achievement for the day I've got everything mapped up for the next you know six months um so I think on the basis of that on a purely psychological level I'll probably write more books <laughs> if, anyone will, if anyone will have them and, and something that interests me with with writers today in 2021 is the need to be on social media and I notice you're not publicly on Instagram you don't have an author page you do use Twitter is that, uh, have you, was there a push to be like, Joe, we need you on Instagram to sell this book? <laughs> I, um, so I, I was like gently hinted to that if I, wanted, if I wanted to like, I have a private Instagram and the reason it's private is because I think, like I like Instagram a lot more than Twitter and that's mainly because it's populated or at least my one is populated by people I actually know. Um, and talk to and make plans with. And um, it's, I guess it's what Facebook was meant to be uh, before, you know, before it fixed an election. Um, <laughs> and I, um, I keep that private because, you know, I think I have many silly little thoughts as everyone does and not all of them 
be publicly accessible. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's the same impulse as reading or writing a book. You know, you go, I think this. Does someone else think that? And Instagram is just another way to, um, to do that amongst friends. But again, those, those thoughts shouldn't, shouldn't be widely publicly accessible. And then Twitter, I, Twitter is just a really interesting resource, both for research and, but I think it's much safer or maybe cowardly to watch rather than participate. I had like a very thorough clear out of everything I've ever tweeted. <laughs> yeah. Before, before like all of this went yes. public. Of course, yeah, I find it so interesting how different authors use social media now. Um, some who put every thought they ever had onto Twitter, some who just retweet their articles. It is interesting to see the the marketing and promotional side of, of things I mean, on social media. Someone whose Twitter presence I'm fascinated by is Brendan Taylor's because like on the one hand, sometimes I think this is masterful like he'll you know give he'll use it as a resource I used to like it, my most utopian sense of Twitter was this is a great way to share incredible things so he'll upload Bach concertos and he'll share whatever critical theory he's been reading he'll you know fangirl over um, whatever TV show he's watching, and that'll become a great web for everyone to um, to to bond and discuss, etc. But my, I got, I I got really fascinated by the way that he would kind of, usually while I was asleep, um, tweet a load of things and then delete them, and then write this very one cryptic tweet to the effect of. I'm not going to be canceled today. So I've, I've deleted everything or whatever. And, and I thought, well, then why, why share it in the first place? And I don't mean that in a, in a patronizing way or in a, um, you know, in a frustrated way. I, I mean it quite genuinely. What was the impulse if you knew that you were going to take it down? What was the impulse to say it? Maybe that's a way of using Twitter in a much more real life kind of sense that you say something and then it only exists for a certain period of time before it disappears yeah. and then got the after effects but I yeah I could never do what Brandon does ever I I don't have the wherewithal <laughs> it is yeah he I interviewed him for his uh, first book back in February 2020 we talked a lot about Twitter and throughout the you know year and a half since so many people have brought him up because it's he's just doing a masterful job of whatever he's doing you know mm. and i don't know if any no I'm one so else can do it time for him um you mentioned um the internet novels that that came out recently um lockwood and euler has there been any other books outside of internet novels or what what what's piquing your interest now um well, now I'm doing a lot of work related reading for the booker, um, reading every long listed book that I can get my hands on. And some some have been, some I've been loving more than others. So I'm reading G by John Berger at the moment. And it's, it's just absolutely stunning. It's a kind of, um, 
it weaves various strands of the Don Juan myth in with um, migration politics across Europe and um, art criticism. And it's, it's just such a stunningly beautiful book. And I'm just looking over to see what else I've been reading. Um, oh, for some reason, I don't seem to be reading anything terribly current. I've got Henry James's The Pupil on my desk, which I've been dipping in and out of. Um, I've got the new Edward St. Aubin, but I'm not very far in with it. Uh, but I did love Patrick Melrose a few years ago. Um, mostly, I think I've kind of been rereading a lot. This is always my answer because I'm always doing it. Rereading a lot of um, cultural and critical theory because it just keeps me Mm, I don't know it, it keeps me on top of things somehow um so at the moment I've been loving Merve Emre's Paralitary um which is uh how paralitary or I guess extra literary texts shape reading habits in America post-war um I'm really looking forward to her annotated Mrs Dalloway because I am if not evidenced by my novel A Wolf fanatic thank you so much to joe for coming on the day beautiful podcast today like we talked about she doesn't have a large footprint on the internet but she is on twitter at joe underscore hamia that's j-o underscore h-a-m-y-a day beautiful can be found on instagram twitter and facebook at day beautiful our website is daybeautiful.net, where you can read all of the author interviews, check all of the book recommendations, and then find links to every single podcast we have done. As always, I'm Adam, this is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful. Beautiful.